Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Within two days, the tall, dark-haired man had left behind Wichita Falls and the two girls that he had murdered. Near downtown in a drug-riddled travel lodge, the man found drugs instead of the jobs he was supposed to be looking for. He shot up again and again to try and forget the images of the young Terry Sims pleading and fighting for her life. The images of Tony Gibbs running through the secluded field trying to run from him as he chased her angry over what he couldn't remember. The drugs and alcohol helped, but he would never forget their faces. One night, lonely and in a bar on East Lancaster, he was drinking away the little money he had, fighting the demons of what he was and had done, when a pretty brunette sat down next to him. He looked at her, noticing her delicate features. She was beautiful, and he offered to buy her a drink. Deborah, the name she had given him, was there to continue the party that had started back at her house not far from the little bar. Her husband, Ken, and friends were back at home all ready to call it a night. Deborah was only 23, and the night was young. The tall, dark-haired man asked Deborah to dance. She took his hand and the two spun around the dance floor. His hand around her middle, pressing her five foot four, hundred and ten pound body to him, dancing to each song. After a few spins, the young woman was ready to return home to her husband. It was after midnight and it was time for her to go and be at home. The man that had spun and two-stepped with her offered her a ride. She agreed, none the wiser to his intentions. Once in the parking lot, he pressed her tiny body to his and kissed her heart. She screamed no and pushed the stranger off of her. Her tiny hand connected with his cheek. This sent him into an alcohol-fueled fury. The same one that had claimed the lives of Terry and Tony back in Wichita Falls. He punched her once, twice, followed by another and another. Deborah fell, bouncing her head off the cracked asphalt parking lot. The man's hands wrapped around her throat, and he squeezed until Deborah's body went limp. Another victim. His rage was out of control, but not enough to force him to do anything about it. He dumped his dance partner's lifeless body in a clump of trees without any of her clothing and drove back to the lonely motel room with nothing more than the memories of now three women who had died at his hands. March 29, 1985, five days after Ken Taylor had reported his young wife Deborah missing, her body was found by two asphalt construction workers. They stumbled on the body of a woman, badly decomposed thanks to the Texas heat. When Ken was called to identify the body, he had prayed it wasn't his wife. He wanted hope that she was still alive. But there was no mistaking the necklace she had on, the very one he had given her for Christmas. 
and his wedding bands that he had placed on her hand when they promised till death do they part. His wife's body laid on a cold metal table in front of him. A nightmare in itself. But for Ken, his nightmare was just beginning. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight we close out the case of Farian Wardrop, the black mark on the community of Wichita Falls. He has blamed anyone and everyone for his problems in his life, even taking to screaming at the sky, cursing God for all of his misfortune. He wants someone to step in and change the trajectory of his life instead of taking responsibility into his own hands and making the changes needed to get him back on the path he wants. Three women have been murdered at his hands and as a result of his anger, but his path of destruction hasn't come to an end. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of rape, murder, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. We have just a little bit of house cleaning to go over tonight before we get started. And as promised, last week we unveiled the limited shirts of the month for March. You have until midnight, March 31st, to get your hands on this month's shirt. Once it's gone, it's gone. The link to the store can be found in the description of this podcast on either your podcast platform or in the description of the YouTube video. If you haven't started following me on social media, don't forget to do that so that you never miss an update. If you're listening on YouTube, make sure you've liked, subscribed, and rang that notification bell so you never miss an upload. Last, let's do some true crime nerd love to Whitney Burkoff, Jamie White, Rachel Milling, Tara D, and last but certainly not least, Mary Ray. If you'd like to make it on the list of love, all you have to do is review, recommend, or support the show. Make sure to use the hashtag the true crime librarian on social media so that your review and recommendation can be seen by the librarian. Enough of that. Let's get to why you're all here. The true crime. Last week, we left off with the hung jury in Danny Laughlin's murder trial for the death of Tony Gibbs. Danny walked away that afternoon and never saw another indictment or trial in the matter of the death of Tony. Terry Sims and now Tony Gibbs murders were on ice as the cases grew colder and colder with each passing day. The police at Wichita Falls Police Department were no closer to finding who killed these women than they were the day the bodies were discovered. Farian left town just days following the news of Tony Gibbs' body being found. He headed south to Fort Worth, Texas. He was headed to the mega city to find work, something that would keep his wife, whose patience with him was growing super slim, from filing for divorce. But instead, all he found was more drugs to pump into his veins and alcohol to fill his belly as an attempt to create a fog that would force the memories of Terry and Tony from his mind. But here he is on his way back to Wichita with nothing to show for his time away other than another body. No one even knew he would be connected to this body. 
Let me introduce you to Ellen Blau. She was born on March 18, 1964 to Rima and Murray Blau in Saddle River, New Jersey. Those who knew Ellen knew that she was friendly to everyone she met, quick to trust them and giving them, you know, the benefit of the doubt. She was a very social butterfly and to her, everybody was good until you proved you were bad. Ellen went to school through a boarding school and at times she could only talk about doing something that would help other people once she finished high school. One of the things she talked about was becoming an OB which is a great way to help people. But then she would have moments where she didn't want to do anything. She didn't want to go to class and she didn't want to go to college after high school. She wanted freedom from classes, from schoolworks, from the demand of high grades from her parents. She wanted to be done. During her junior year in high school, Ellen and a friend had left the boarding school grounds against the rules. And during that outing, she met Jeff. He was a man six years her elder, but Ellen didn't seem to care about the age and neither did Jeff. To them, they were both just a number. The two fell for each other and there was an immediate attraction. They started dating and seeing each other behind her parents' back because she knew they would not be comfortable with Jeff being that he was so much older and Jeff was kind of a drifter. It's not really clear why he was in New Jersey at the time, but he was, and he moved his travel trailer closer to Ellen so that while she was at school, the two could still see each other frequently. But in between her junior and senior year, Jeff had had enough of New Jersey and he was ready to move to Texas. His brother was currently stationed with the United States Air Force at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls he asked Ellen to come with him and she followed. Jeff and Ellen left New Jersey that summer and drove to Wichita Falls and this sent her mother and father into a, a huge rage. They were mad. They couldn't believe that she would give up an opportunity. Murray had worked so hard to provide her with this life. How could she squander it away? That's how our parents thought. Eventually, they figured out that she had left New Jersey with Jeff to move to Wichita Falls. So before Mary could board the plane to head to Texas, he called Wichita Falls PD, told them of the situation, and asked them to go pick up Ellen and hold on to her till he could get there. That's exactly what they did. Ellen waited at the Wichita Falls Police Department until her dad came and picked her up. And the two fought. I mean, they were, how, you know, how could you do this to me? How could you not let me live my life? And, and you know, Murray was like, how could you not take advantage of all the opportunities that I have worked very hard to provide you with? Ellen didn't care. She wanted adventure. She wanted something new. She had to break up the monotony. So in their flat home, Murray and Ellen came to an agreement she would go home to New Jersey. She would finish high school in a public high school because she was done with the boarding school. And if she still felt like she needed to move back to Wichita Falls and be with Jeff, then at that time she could. What Murray had hoped when he made this agreement is the school year, the time apart, the, the nine months that, you know, they wouldn't see each other, distance would, would create this wedge and drive them apart. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. 
Ellen graduated high school and she was out of New Jersey as fast as she could. She, she packed her stuff and was like, I'm going, I'm going back to Jeff. I'm going to Wichita Falls. And the agreement had been made and Marie and Rami, they, they, what were they going to say? You know, at this point, she's 18. She made that decision. It pissed them off because they had provided this, this life for her. They, she, basically whatever she wanted, whatever she desired, they laid it out and gave her the skills and the money and the know-how to do it. And to them, she was nothing but a disgrace because she was throwing all of that away. But once Ellen moved to Wichita Falls, she really wasn't going to just throw it away. She moved in with Jeff and decided she was going to enroll in some classes at Midwestern State University that is in Wichita Falls. So she she still decided to continue her education, even though there was times she wanted that freedom away from school and, and the the cliques and, you know, just the teachers you know, when you, you, you remember being a senior in high school and all you could think about was, I'm about to blow this joint and I never have to deal with this no more. I'm, I'm done with the teachers. I'm done with, done with it all. I, I just, I want to make my own decisions because at 18, we're an adult and we know everything apparently. And that's how she felt. This is why she packed up and moved half, you know, halfway across the country to be with a man that she had barely knew but it didn't matter to her. She loved it. She loved the experience it was going to provide her. It wasn't long after Ellen got to Wichita Falls that she did find a job working as a waitress at Bennigan's restaurant. And she worked hard. I mean, she, she rode a bike to work because she didn't have the money to have a car. Jeff didn't have money. He didn't have a job. So she was the only one attempting to, to provide for their relationship. While she was going and, and busting her ass being a waitress, Jeff was at home sitting around, getting high, smoking pot, not attempting to find any kind of job. He was simply feeding off those around him. And Ellen had had it at six months after she moved to Wichita Falls. She and Jeff called it quits and went their different ways. Now, Ellen was... Um, kind of homeless at this point because she, you know, she, she moved to Wichita Falls to be with Jeff and she didn't have her parents to fall back on. There was nowhere to move back into unless she went back home to their house and she wasn't going to have it because at this point she's made friends. One of them, a very close friend named Janie. Now Janie was newly married to her husband, Danny, and they were expecting their first child and Ellen and Janie were waitressing together at Bennigan's. So eventually, Ellen just was like, can I sleep on your couch? Can I sleep on your couch? She was just kind of drifting. Eventually, she saved up enough money. She got herself this apartment in some shithole complex that was, I mean, when she moved in, it already had mice and, and cockroaches and things like that. But Ellen didn't care, which is abnormal seeing as she came from money and this was something different to have these kind of intrusions in her home. She didn't care. Ellen worked hard. It was hers and she was proud of it. And she lived in that apartment complex despite Janie going, you should not live here. You need, this is not okay. This is not 
you know, habitable. What are you doing living in this disgusting place? But Ellen didn't care for a while. Uh, she got bit by one too many spiders. I, it would have only took one for me to be like, burn this place down. But, you know, I don't really care for spiders. But Ellen, she was so headstrong to do this on her own, to make this successful. She didn't want anybody to come back and say, I told you so. In the end, Ellen finally decided to give up her trash heap of an apartment and, and took Janie and Danny's offer to live with them until she could save up enough money to get a better place to live. So she moved in with her friend and her friend's husband. Now, as she would go to Janie's apartment, even when before she lived there just visiting, there was a tall, dark-haired man living in the same complex, and he seemed to always notice Ellen. And Janie noticed him noticing Ellen. And it was in a creepy stalker factor because Janie constantly told Ellen, stay away from him. He gives me the creeps. There's something not right about him. And Ellen, she hadn't had an opportunity to actually get to know this person but she kind of brushed Janie off about it. Again, she never tried to strike up any kind of conversation when she saw this guy. Nine times out of ten, they walked past each other and she never even realized he was there. And it wasn't out of, he's not good enough, okay? None of these, that's the thing with all of these women. None of them were quick to judge or quick to put themselves above another human being. They were equal. Everybody started at the same point. You got the benefit of the doubt. I trust you. I don't see you as a bad person. All of these things, you need to prove to me that you are them. If you're a bad person, you have to show me what kind of bad person you really are. And in that time, there was ignorance. And ignorance is bliss. You know, we're seeing a rise in in killers and, and serial killers and, and spree killers and mass. So we're starting to see this influx with murder and kidnapping and, and child. The 80s seemed to be this turning point. These things didn't just start happening in the 70s and 80s. That's not it. They were happening long ago you know, look at H.H. Holmes. He, he was a serial killer. How long ago? You have all these factors that you think, oh, there was like a spike in becoming, it was like a trend to be a serial killer. That's not it. It's the advancement of media. That's how we are seeing this rise. Back in the early 1900s, these things were still going on. There were people out there taking other people's lives because they could. They had that capability. And they lacked the emotions needed to feel the, the guilt from doing so. But the media was very limited to your local area. There wasn't national news unless it was a presidential notification, okay? So it wasn't like you were in Texas hearing about a murder in California or in New York City. That was not what it is today or even in the 80s. So as media 
begin to broaden their horizons as far as how much and where they reported things, we started to see more news about these serial killers that are, are seemingly popping up in our country. They aren't, though. Don't forget it. They are not just popping up in the 80s, the 70s and 80s. They are, they've always been there. The media now has the capability to report news that is outside of your local area. That's where that change seems to happen. So, but at the time, we're still, you know, all of this is still kind of new. And you think that would never happen here. That would never happen in my own backyard. And, and so everybody was very trusting of people they they first met back then. And, and Ellen was the same. All the women were the same. They gave everybody the benefit of the doubt. And unfortunately, when they crossed paths with Farian Wardrop, he took complete and total advantage of it. On September 20th in 1985, Ellen was locking up at her new job at Subs and Suds, and she was going to go next door to the pizza inn. She was going to have a drink with a coworker, with the restaurant manager, and her current boyfriend, who was, he was just temporarily placed at Shepherd Air Force Base. He wasn't in the Air Force. He was in the Navy. But due to some training or due to some, you know, instructing that he was doing, he had to come to the base and stay for a little bit, and he ended up meeting Ellen, and the two hit it off and began dating. So they all, all four of these people are at the Pizza Inn. It's well after 10 o'clock at night. They're drinking. They're having, you know, just a good time hanging out with one another. However, the co-worker and Ellen's new boyfriend, they get in a little bit of a, an argument with words, and Ellen decides she's going to take him back to the dorms on base and that she would be back, you know, best to just deflect and, and everybody go to your corner and, you know, let's nip this in the bud right now. So Ellen drives her boyfriend back to the base and then she comes back to the pizza inn where she continues to have a good time with her coworker and, and the restaurant manager. Around midnight, you know, they're told, hey, look, we're closing. Y'all y'all don't have to go home, but you can't stay here kind of thing. And Ellen decides, you know, it's late. I need to go home. I've got a shift in the morning. I'm going to be here a little bit early because we've got deliveries coming in. So Ellen climbs into her brand new Volkswagen Beetle. It's a kind of green, mossy green color. And she's very proud because for the longest time living in Wichita Falls, she had no car. She had a bicycle and she rode that thing proudly all over town. But now she finally got to a point where she could purchase her very first car by herself with, without the help of her parents. And she was proud of it. She climbed into the new car and she headed just up the road on Old Burke Road. And there's a convenience store and it still sits there today called the Country Store. She pulled in and it's unclear if she was, you know, there to pick something up real quick from the gas station, cigarettes or whatever, or if she was needing gas, but it, it didn't matter because Farian had been walking home from his job at the Pizza Inn and he saw Ellen as she's leaving the convenience store and he walks up to her and he's telling her, I'd like to talk to you. And Ellen's like, you, you know, it's late, dude, I'm going home. How about we, you know, get together and we'll talk about whatever it is you want to talk about later. 
And Farian is very insistent. He's he's like, no, I need to talk to you right now. But that didn't matter. Ellen, at this point, she is suspicious of him. She's becoming a little on edge. Her heart rate has picked up. She's starting to notice her surroundings a little bit more because of his insistence uh, of talking to her. And the two didn't know each other. So what what did he have to say to her? Ellen decides she's going to get in her car and get away from the situation just to defuse what is going on. So she quickly unlocks her door and jumps into the driver's seat. But Farian is just as quick and he ends up in the passenger seat next to her and he tells her, drive, drive now. He instructs Ellen to drive in the direction of out of town and they are headed to seclusion. No witnesses. Farian, he's yelling at her in the same way that he did with Tony. You know, he's, he, drive, why are you like this? Why do you, you know, I hate you. And Ellen is completely confused about his erratic behavior, but Farian is high. It seems to be that this anger doesn't come to the surface until he gives it a little boost of confidence with whatever intravenously injected drug he had just consumed. They pull out to this deserted, unoccupied land on East Road, and as soon as she turns the car off, Farian grabs her by her hair, and he begins punching and slapping her in the face. And then from seemingly out of nowhere, he pulls a hunting knife and stabs her. Ellen manages to get away from him and get out of the car, and she takes off into the field just as Tony did. Farian follows her, and again, he has such a bigger stride because he is so much taller than Ellen that he catches her with very little effort, and he throws her to the ground. He forcibly removes her clothing and throws it into a pile close to this tree line near the body, and he continues to yell at Helen and, and punch her and, you know, just listen to me kind of thing. There's significant tissue damage that is done during this beating, but when the autopsy comes back later, we don't even know, you know, the worst of it because there is no tissue. Eventually, Farian presses his forearm down to her throat and he pushes it hard just to, you know, stop her from moving, listen to what I have to say, but in the end, he ends up, he ends up taking the life of Ellen Blau. Now, Janie, her friend and roommate, woke up on the morning of September 20th to find that Ellen never came home from work the night before. This isn't like her. She always calls to let Janie know, you know, I'm not coming home tonight or I'm going to be late. And so it's not like her to not let Janie know what is going on. So she's a little concerned, but not overly, until she receives a phone call from the bread delivery guy asking if Ellen's there because he's at the restaurant to drop his delivery and she's not there. And it's, this is not usual for her. And Janie begins to freak out. What do you mean? Ellen's not there. You know, she, she's not here now. I don't, I have no idea where she's at. And so Ellen not coming into work, this is out of the ordinary. And then Janie remembers hearing about Tony Gibbs. And this seems to run parallel with Ellen and, and their situation currently. The restaurant manager of Subs and Subs ends up noticing 
Ellen's brand new car just a few blocks down the road from the convenience store. And again, this is not normal. He gets into the car and he's able to see that the purse, her purse is in the car with her identification, money, everything. And the keys are still in the ignition, but the seat has been pushed back further than what Ellen is in height. And so this is, this is not normal. And when he looks down, he notices this rusty brown red color spot on the driver's seat. And once he tells Janie this, there's fear that it's blood. Wichita Falls PD is on scene at Subs and Subs and at Janie's apartment, and they are taking the report of Ellen missing. Nobody can find her. You know, we found her car. We found her purse. It has the keys in it, and there may or may not be blood on the seat. Wichita PD impounds Ellen's car to process it for any further evidence, and half a dozen SWAT team members spent that morning canvassing the area where Ellen's car was found. They don't find Ellen. Wichita PD, they're trying to comfort Janie and telling her, you know, they don't have proof uh, of any foul play. There's no body. And this isn't what, it's not the same thing that we saw with Tony Gitz. But it is, you know. Tony's car was found blocks away from her apartment. Ellen's car found blocks away from her, her work. Both women are missing there, nobody's heard from them. Both me, women never came into their next scheduled shift. We are seeing exactly what happened with Tony, only we're seeing it a year later. By the end of the day, Janie was tasked with calling Ellen's parents in Shelton, Connecticut, where they had moved to. Rima Blau was on the first flight out to Texas. She wanted to be there for the investigation. She was going to help find their, her daughter, and she prayed and hoped that they would find her alive. Janie and Danny offered Rima a place to stay while she was in town, and she accepted. You know, it was, that would be the central point of contact. If they called Janie's, they would get with Rima as well. As the days crept by, Rima was constantly calling the police department or going up there and asking, what's new? What have you, have you done anything today? What do you know about Ellen today? And nothing new was being reported. On October 10th, 1985, county worker Donald Morgan spent that Thursday morning mowing the borrow ditches along East Road. Out of the corner of his eye, he, as he was mowing, he noticed something different. He backed the tractor up and looked at what was seemingly out of place, and it turned to be a nude body. He completely flips out, gets a hold of Wichita Falls, Wichita Falls PD. Unfortunately, due to it being outside of the city limits, Wichita County Sheriff's Office shows up to process the scene. Lieutenant Tom Callahan calls Janie from the Wichita County Sheriff's Department and says, quote, ma'am, we found a body in a pasture out near the Air Force Base. We think it may be Ellen Blau. Janie and her husband are asked to come down and identify the body. Laid out at the, the sheriff's department was some clothing and things found near Ellen's body. And they asked Janie and Danny if they recognized any of this. And the first thing was like a silver knot ring. And Janie, she didn't recognize it. And she filled with hope because I don't know that ring. Ellen didn't have that ring. I've never seen her wear it. 
He pulls out the next baggie and inside is this tiny gold necklace with a pendant of two praying hands. And that crushes Janie. It was given to Ellen from her grandmother and Ellen wore it every day. She never took it off. Once that was identified, Lieutenant Callahan asked Danny and Janie to come with him out to the field and, and identify the body. Once they get out to East Road, he tells both of them, you know, stay in the car. I will come get you when you're ready. There's an ambulance there. They're waiting with the back doors open. And there's a, there's a circle of investigators out in this field looking at the ground at something. The lieutenant eventually comes back to the car and he tells him, you know, you don't have to go out there and you don't have to identify the body. The DA is pretty certain that we're going to be able to make the identification by dental records. In reality, it would not have been a good thing for Janie and Danny to see their friend in this manner. Ellen was nude except for a sock. Her body had been mutilated by wild animals. Her skull was nothing but the bone. Everything had been ripped away. She had an arm that had been completely torn away from the body. It would not have been good for them to see her in that manner. And they would not have been able to identify her without the soft tissue structures that give your face your identification. Rima made arrangements to have dental records from New Jersey sent to Texas so that they had something to compare them to. The body in the field off of East Rose was that of the missing 20-year-old Ellen Blau, who had been missing for 10 days. Farian's name never came up in investigation. On May 6, 1986, Tina Elizabeth Kimbrew, the only daughter of Elaine and Robert Kimbrew, was bringing her little black toy poodle in after taking it out for a potty break in the morning. Tina was fixing to go and get ready. Elaine, her mother, had had surgery just a couple of days before, and she was at the hospital recovering, and Tina was going to go up there and sit with her mom. But before she could get ready, there was a knock at the door. Tina goes and she she looks through the people and, and it's Farian, her friend. And she opens the door and Farian tells her, you know, I need help. I, you know, you do you have something to take the edge off? I'm, you know, I need help. I don't feel good. And Tina invites him in. It's unclear if if she had something to provide Farian with to help with the withdrawals that he was going through. Here's the thing about this case. Tina Kimbrew is this pivotal point in this investigation and in, in this true crime case. But it's very unclear of how this morning goes between the, the victim and, and the killer. Because they are friends. So, you know, Tina invites him in. She closes the door and immediately Farian presses his body to hers and kisses her. And the two knew each other. They had met at the Stardust where Farian was currently working as their doorman checking IDs. It's rumored that him and Tina had gone on a couple dates, but there wasn't a romantic connection, so they decided to stay friends. But in the moment that he walks in the door and he automatically pushes himself onto his friend, she pushes, his, pushes him back and tells him no. And the rage inside of him explodes and he slaps Tina hard across the face. 
He jumps on her, attacking, punching, and slapping Tina. He's holding her down, and she's doing everything that she can to fight him off. But Farian eventually pulls her panties down and removes them. Tina is using her elbows as leverage to keep from allowing Farian to lay her flat on the floor. So she's trying to lift herself up, hopefully get into a sitting position, which would allow her to hopefully get up and be able to run. However, Farian is in a withdrawal. He's, he's angry. His body is chaotic on the inside. And he has this unnatural force. And, he, and Tina just doesn't have enough to get herself up. Once Farian gets fed up with the fact that she keeps trying to get up and fight back, he wraps his hands around her neck and he starts to squeeze. And he squeezes so hard that the necklace she's wearing ends up leaving an impression into the skin that is able to be seen after she dies. Farian's rage is so unpredictable. He he snaps at the most, what would be the most minute things? Kissing your friend and her telling you no isn't exactly something to cause this rage. Kissing a stranger and her telling you no should not elicit this kind of rage. But for Farian, it does. And he only gets angrier as Tina fights back. And he eventually shoves his forearm down onto her mouth and nose and presses until Tina stops moving. She stops breathing. She stops living. He gets up and he looks down and he's, he sees his friend on the ground and he can't believe he just did what he did. And he gets up and he walks out of the apartment. He never goes through anything. He doesn't raffle the apartment looking for some kind of drug. The experience of taking the life of his friend was enough to rattle him and completely make him lose his train of thought. And as he leaves the apartment, somebody does notice this tall, dark-haired man being at her apartment. Elaine, Tina's mother, she's at the hospital and she's visiting with her niece, Shelly, and her mother, her ex-mother-in-law, Mildred. And then she suddenly becomes hysterical. She's telling them, you know, something, something's wrong. Something's happened to Tina's. This isn't right. I, you know, I can't get out of here. I need you two to go check on her. Something's not right. And, and of course, Shelly and Mildred, they're trying to calm her down. They're, you know, Tina will be here soon. Everything's okay. Nothing's wrong. But no amount of coaxing calms Ellen down. Hospital staff eventually comes in due to the amount of monitors going off and they give something to sedate Ellen, but it does not work. She continues with this hysteria and finally Shelly and Mildred give in. You know, we'll go check on Tina. We'll bring her back. We'll show you she's okay. She refuses any medication from hospital staff for the second dose of sedation because she wants to be awake when Tina gets there. She needs to see her with her own two eyes and she needs to hear her daughter. Shelly and Mildred go over to Tina's apartment at Park Regency Apartments and they're there to check on her. Shelly had been given a key from Tina. The two were very close for being cousins. And as, as soon as Tina moved into this new apartment, she gave Shelly a key. Well, Shelly uses her key to let herself and her young daughter into the apartment. She's going to wash her daughter's face while, she, you know, Tina gets finishes up and they can take them to the hospital. And as soon as she steps foot into the living room, she looks down and there's Tina's lifeless body looking 
back at her. She's on the floor close to the sofa. Her leg is bent kind of at the awkward way. It almost looks like she's half on the couch and half on the floor. But I think it's the angle of the way her 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 leg is positioned. Shelly immediately, you know, puts her hands over her daughter's face and takes her into the kitchen and she sets her down. And Shelly knows she's got to go get Mildred. You know, they've got to call the police. Something needs to be done. Something's, something is wrong. And so she tells her daughter in the firmest voice that she can muster, you stay here. You don't go anywhere. Wait till I get back. And she turns to leave the kitchen. And when she steps back into the living room, there's Mildred looking down at her granddaughter who is gone. And this kind of throws Mildred and she can't stand that Tina's eyes are open and looking back at her, but there's nothing behind her eyes. And so she covers up Tina's body before police can get there. Now, you're a nerd. You, you, if you've read any or heard any true crime, you should know that you do not do what Mildred did. Mildred was trying to ease the situation. She was trying to lessen the the shock of, of her granddaughter's body on the floor. And I can get where she's coming from when she covers her up. You don't want to see that. You can't look at that until somebody gets here to help you, you know, help get the body out of the way. But I cannot stress this enough. I cannot stress this enough because as much as that hurts, as much as that shocks you, you want to be able to have justice. That's that's the closure that you're going to need in order to, to properly begin the healing process. And so by doing this and she contaminates the scene, it now makes the evidence collected around the body inadmissible in any trial. Getting anything past the judge and cleared after the scene has been contaminated is like trying to light a fire in the ocean. It's not going to happen. Don't touch it. Don't. I, as much as you want to, don't touch it. Mildred and the police and, and everybody shows up and they start the investigation and Mildred calls her son, Robert Kimbrough. Robert and Elaine were married, but they divorced when Tina was a sophomore in high school. The two co-parented really well, even far beyond their daughter's death. Mildred told Robert what had happened, and he was tasked with going to the hospital and, and telling his ex-wife that their only child was gone. Robert walks into her room, and Ellen can read him. They, they had been together for a long time. She knew exactly what he was thinking, but she wouldn't believe it until he said the words. And all Robert could say was, Tina was killed. On May 9th, 1986, Farian had managed to get himself all the way to Galveston. After the murder of his friend, he wanted to see the ocean before he died. With the news of Tina Kimbrew's murder on the news, he decided he couldn't do life anymore. He was done. You know, he was failing at every turn. He had now killed his friend and he just couldn't handle it. And from his motel room at the Driftwood, he called Galveston Police Department and said he was going to commit suicide. Galveston PD officers, they were on scene within a few minutes of his phone call. And as soon as he opens the door to his motel room, he tells them, 
I couldn't do it. And he hands over the hunting knife he had bought at Walmart not just too long ago for the very reason of taking his own life. The officers, they asked Mary, you know, why, why were you going to kill yourself? And what he says next was far from what they expected to hear. He says, quote, because I murdered this woman back in Wichita Falls. She was my friend and I killed her. I hit her and strangled her and I killed her, end quote. Farian was immediately taken into custody and Galveston police called Wichita Falls to inform them they had a man in custody and he was claiming to have murdered Tina Kimbrew. Hours before Tina's funeral on May 9th, that Mother's Day of 1986, Robert receives a phone call from Sergeant Hobson at his mother's house and he tells him, you know, I thought I could find you here. And he says, I just wanted you to know we, we have the guy who killed your daughter. The man is in custody in Galveston. He's confessing to Tina's murder and he calls himself Gonzo. Elaine did not get to hear the news as Robert wanted to talk to her in private and they just didn't have the time prior to the funeral. After the funeral was over and they had laid their daughter to rest and it was just Robert and Elaine, he told her about the conversation he had had just before the funeral with Sergeant Hobson. The transportation officers from Wichita Falls had nine plus hours of a ride back home with Farian in the back seat. There was dead air and Farian decided he needed to fill that dead air. And here's a little tip for those of you who, you know, end up in, a, in an argument or in a situation where you think the other person did something if you will stay quiet and not say anything, they will feel the need to feel that dead air. They'll keep talking, not necessarily hearing what they are saying. They're just going to keep talking until you talk back. This works. This technique worked well for the officers from Wichita Falls. Farian didn't talk about the confession he had made in Galveston, and he didn't need to. It had already gone on record with Galveston officers. Instead, what he was talking about was how his wife had left him with his kids and he was concerned that she was going to file for divorce. And then he started talking about people he knew back in Wichita Falls. And he drops the name Ellen Blau. At the time, the officers do not register what they just heard. However, it's a name and a and that is said in his voice that will come back and haunt him. Barry Maka, Wichita County's district attorney, worked with Farian and Farian's court-appointed lawyer. For his confession, Farian was offered a deal of 35 years for the murder of Tina Kimbrew. When Robert and Elaine found out about this, they were irate. How could they only give him 35 years for the death of their only child? They went down and they talked with Maka and Robert would, he just got more angrier as Maka kept saying, you know, I understand what you're going through. I'm sorry, but, you know, with Mildred covering up Tina's body, this is the best way. Because if we go to trial, we may not land that conviction because the evidence collected at the scene may not be admissible in the court. And Robert tells Maka, he's like, do you have any kids? And Maka says, no, you know, I'm, I just got married. We're still newlyweds. And Robert tells him, 
then you do not understand what we are going through. And until you lose a child, you will not understand what we are going through. And this really put Maka in his place and made him step back and realize, you know, it's really disrespectful to try and say that you understand. What you could say, though, is you sympathize. But it didn't matter. Robert was pissed. The other problem with this whole deal thing is the plea hearing was set up for October 27th, 1986, the day that Tina would have turned 22. Robert told Maka, you know, this is completely disrespectful to his victim, Tina. That is her birthday. How can you do that? And in Robert's mind, he's thinking, what difference does it make? The sooner we can get this done, the sooner we have justice. However, he does not say this out loud to Robert. And Maka tells Robert and Elaine, you know, let me talk to the judge and see if we can get this moved, but I may not can. December 2nd, 1986, Varian Edward Wardrop accepted the deal from the district attorney, Barry Maka. He would serve 35 years inside the Texas Department of Corrections system for the murder of Tina Elizabeth Kimbrew. At just 13 months into his sentence, Varian saw his very first parole board. Robert Kimbrough did everything he could to see that Farian stayed exactly where he was. Less than a year after that, he saw his second board. Again, Robert Kimbrough and, and Elaine and her new husband fought to see that Farian was denied parole, and, and he was. Early in 1995, Robert Kimbrough received word that Farian Wardrop was granted parole. Now, from what I understand, it is customary for when an offender is granted parole and they are set to be released, the victim and their family are notified that they, these, you know, this person will, will be back out into the world. It's just customary and cordial. However, what's not customary is not allowing the victim or the family of the victim to speak to the parole board whenever a, a parole hearing comes up for an offender. Robert and Elaine Kimbrough were not offered that advantage with this 1995 parole grant. And so Robert calls the board and he tells them, you know, how could you do this? For one, he never knew that Farian was up uh, yet again for another parole board. So you didn't allow me to speak. You didn't allow me to express what I thought. And for two, you know, I didn't, Tina didn't have an opportunity to be heard. I, you know, I, that's my job as a grieving father of a child, you know, of losing a child. I get to speak for her and y'all did not afford me that opportunity. So as he's talking with this unnamed board member, he, the board member becomes very disrespectful to Robert, you know, basically telling him, what he had to say for himself and for his daughter didn't matter. Farian was an upstanding inmate and he had was actively taking steps to become a better person in the in the free world. And so it doesn't really matter what you have to say. It's it's not going to change our minds. And Robert said that's not the point. The point is I want you to hear what I have to say. But that guy was like, okay, what will it take to get you to shut up and get off the phone, basically? And Robert told him, you know, I want to set up, I want to set up a meeting. Time for me to come in and, and sit down and talk with you. And this guy's like, okay, well, let me check my schedule. I'll call you back. And Robert's like, I'm not going to sit next to this phone 
all freaking day long waiting for you to to decide not to call me back. When are you going to call me back? And he says, you know, I'll call you back tomorrow. Well, Robert hangs up the phone and he is not happy. This is not the way he expected to be treated by, by a member of the Department of Corrections. So he picks up the phone and he calls a lady named Raven Kazin. She is the director, she was the director of Department of Corrections Victim Service Division. And Robert would say that she's one of the very few people that are involved in the case that he could trust when it came to things like this. And so he calls up Raven and he tells her, you know, this is the way this board member spoke to me when I asked why I wasn't notified uh, of a parole hearing or why I wasn't allowed to talk to them in regard to their decision. They blew me off. They spoke to me disrespectfully. You know, what can we do? And Raven tells him, she's like, I'm not happy with this and I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to get to the bottom of this and figure out what's going on. I will call you back tomorrow. The next day, Robert receives another phone call, this time from the secretary of the unnamed board member who is very disrespectful. And she informed Robert that Farian's parole had been reconsidered and denied. When Robert asked to speak to her boss, she adamantly denied he's not in the office. And that's it. There wasn't an offer to have him call Robert back. Nothing. In the end, Robert won his fight thanks to Raven. And that's not what he was necessarily wanting. He had hoped that maybe he could convince them to reconsider and deny the parole, but all he wanted was for this board to hear what he had to say about who Farian was and who his daughter was and how Farian took his daughter away from him. That's what he wanted to say. But he never got a chance to. Um, and he was right to pick up the phone and call Raven and have her help mediate what is going on. Because it's not customary for the victim or the family of the victim to not be able to speak at a parole hearing. You can almost bet and go back and look at cases where, where an offender is in prison for murder. And as long as the, as the family of the victim is grieving, um, they tend to make it to every parole board hearing to try and stop them from getting out. When Farian's next parole board was scheduled, Robert decided to take full advantage of the Victim Offender Mediation Dialogue Program. He was finally ready to talk to the man that had killed his daughter. Farian at first wasn't sure. How could he face the man who was the father of his friend who he had killed? How could, what did he have to say? In the end, he reluctantly agreed to, to participate and sit down with Robert. Elaine was living in Houston at the time with her new husband. She was not okay with going and seeing Farian, although we do find out that Elaine had began writing Farian when he first went to jail in Wichita Falls for the, for the murder of her daughter. And the two had corresponded through, through letters. Robert wanted to sit down and talk to him, and Elaine told him, you know, I, I don't think this is a great idea. I don't think you should do it, but I also know I, there's no stopping you. But don't ask me to because I don't want to. And Robert said, that's fine. You know, you don't have to. I'm going to go talk to him. I need to know why. I need to understand what happened. Farian sits down with Robert. And Robert only had 
one thing he wanted to know. He, and this is what he said to Farron. He said, quote, how is it that my daughter could have known someone capable of committing murder? And Farron, he goes on to tell Robert his story. That's not the person she knew. She didn't know a person who was capable of committing murder. The person she knew was a high school graduate. Lie. He went to college for three years. Lie. He made straight A's. Lie. He played football. Lie. She didn't know he had messed up his life with drugs. Lie. He worked three jobs so his friends and family didn't know about his addictions. Lie. He had been writing his dad to forgive him for all the bad things he had put Farian through in his childhood. Lie. His father apologized for not being a better father. Lie. He wanted to be paroled so he could go home and take care of his dying father. Lie. He had met Tina checking IDs at the door of the Stardust. This we know is true. She talked about her father and how proud she was that he was her dad. It's unknown if this is true or not, but honestly, I could not see why he would say this to be a lie unless he's hoping to manipulate the situation and, and really drive home the fact that he's not a bad person. You know, he just accidentally killed their daughter. He said that he would frequently go see Tina and at the time he kept his hair really long and the two would sit around her living room talking as she combed through his hair. Again, I don't know the validity of this one. He said that he didn't know why he'd killed Tina. She was his friend. And this is true as far as we know, because this is the one thing that is very consistent when Farian tells his story and, and what happened between him and Tina Kimbrew. He said they had gone to Tina for help, a place to stay while he sobered up. And Tina told him, no, he wasn't staying at her apartment. And she had gone to her bedroom to get dressed for the day and the next thing he knew Tina was dead and he was walking back to his apartment. This is absolutely not true. Varian changes this part of his story over and over and over. As a matter of fact, that even, even me recounting what had happened that day may not be entirely true. It could all be speculation because we can't get this guy to say the truth to save his own life. In the end, Farian promised he was going to pay all of the bills that Robert had sent him while he was in Wichita County. So what had happened is Robert received his first bill from the ambulance company to pay for the transportation of his daughter's body from the apartment to the hospital. And so he received a bill that he needed to pay and he called, you know, the investigators that he had contact with and they were like, don't pay it. You know, this is something the city takes care of. And then again, Robert receives another bill with a warning, you know, you need to pay this. He calls the ambulance company and he tells them, you know, I'm not going to pay for, for this. You know, I, I lost my child. I'm not paying this. And, and the lady was like, sir, it needs to be paid. And he said, fine, bill the guy who killed her. And this shut the woman up for a minute. And she goes, what's his name and his address? And so Robert sends the bill of the ambulance to Farian in jail. And even though Tina's entire funeral, the casket, the plot, the service, the flowers, everything was paid for, Robert had gone and got a, a list of itemization of everything that had been paid for the funeral. He sent Farian the bill. He expects to be repaid. So when they're sitting down during this mediation, 
Farian promises Robert, when I get out of here, I'm going to pay every bill you gave me for Tina's murder. I'm going to take care of this. Finally, Robert tells Farian that when you get out and if things go bad, I want you to pick up the phone and call me no matter what time it is, day or night, and I'm going to help you however I can. And after the mediation was over, one of the guards asked Robert, you know, why would you offer to help him after what he did to you and your family? And Robert said this, I've got to be ready to do it. I may not like it, but I got to do it to prevent what happened to Tina from happening to anyone else. Farian was granted parole December 11th, 1997, after serving less than a third of his 35-year sentence. John Little was born and raised in Wichita Falls. In 1979, when more than a mile-wild funnel cloud ripped through the city, John dropped out of Midwestern State University and went to work for his brother and his construction company. He was a bricklayer and a damn good one. And in the 80s, his family needed him more than ever with so many homes that needed to be reconstruction due to the damage of this horrific tornado. He found himself in that and he, you know, he was able to provide a great life for him and his wife and their newborn child. But in the late 80s, when building new homes started to die off and the market kind of went soft, it wasn't consistent. And John decided, you know, I need to change my line of work. I need to do something that will, you know, has security that, that will promise me a paycheck every two weeks, you know, twice a month, once a month, whatever. I need some consistency because my wife's pregnant with twins. So John decides he's going to enroll in the police academy. And he went through all of the drills and all of the, the, the book work. He went through it all only to learn that he would not be considered for the Wichita Falls Police Department because he had failed the eye exam portion of his testing. And it would he would have to wait two years before he could go back and try again. And this crushed him. You know, how what do you mean? I felt I've been looking down a straight line, laying this brick. I've never had a problem with my vision. But he notices that Barry Maka's office is looking for an investigator. And it's something that really caught John's eye. So he calls over to Maka and Barry and John, they went to the same church. You know, they knew of each other, but they weren't any, you know, they weren't close friends at the time. So when John called him and, and you know, he's like, hey, what are the qualifications? And Barry invited him up to apply. Here's the thing. Typically, Maka would hire seasoned veterans from the police force to be his investigators. However, they were set in a way of investigation that they were comfortable with and not what Barry needed. So he decided to change it up a little bit this time around and he was going to hire someone right out of the academy. And hopefully this person would not only be willing to look at the investigations from different angles and, and investigate in a style that is reasonable or that is needed for, for each case. It's got to be able to change. And the other thing was he was hoping that the, the, you know, this new individual right out of the academy would grow into this job and he would become a better investigator. Thus, John Little landed the job. In December of 1998, Maka decided it was time. 
So he sat down with Little and talked about the unsolved murders from the earlier time in his career when he first took over district attorney. And that was Terry Sims, Tony Gibbs, and Ellen Blau. These three cold cases haunted him. You know, he had a gut instinct that maybe they were connected, but nowhere in the investigation and in any of the case files or anything could he see the connection. So he asked John to take a look at all the cases, and he told him, he said, Danny Laughlin was killed in 1993. We were able to exonerate him from any wrongdoing with Tony Gibbs with a DNA mismatch, unmatch, whatever you want to call it. They were not able to say that Danny was the person who committed Tony Gibbs' murder because the DNA did not match up. Danny was gone from this world, and, and it took a couple years after his death for them to call his mother and let her let her know, you know, Danny had been exonerated of the murder. So now I need you to sit down. I need you to look at Terry Sims' case. I need you to look at Tony Gibbs' case. I need you to look at Ellen Blouse's case. He has a hunch, and he's hoping maybe John can see it. So mid-January 1999, John had waited till after Christmas. He got through the holidays with his family, and, and life was starting to become normal again. He sits down at his house after the kids have been put to bed, and he opens the case files for Terry Sims, Tony Gibbs, and Ellen Blau. He is going to familiarize himself with each case. Here's the thing. John was connected to a case that is part of this whole thing. When Tony Gibbs had gone missing, his brother had known Tony, and John had known Tony through, through his brother. They were nothing more than acquaintance. You know, they didn't hang out. You know, there was no like, I'll come to your house for dinner. You come to my house for dinner kind of thing. It wasn't that. But he was part of the search party that looked for Tony when she had gone missing. So he sits down, he opens these cases, and he's looking, making a list of names. Any friends, witnesses, suspects. Soon there would be a familiar name amongst the each investigation. Fifty minutes away in a small community of Alden, Texas, was Farian Wardrop. Farian had moved there to be with his family after his parole, and he had gone to church, and he'd become a godly man, and he had met a, you know, a godly woman. Life was finally looking up for him. His father, George Wardrop, had watched his son try to better his life, he, and he had job after job because of his record. So George went to a friend of his named Frank, and he told Frank, you know, my boy's home. He's, he was incarcerated. He, he messed up, but now he's trying to do right, and he really needs a job. Frank owned Alney Door and Screen Company, and he was notorious for giving inmates a second chance once they got out. And so Frank said, you know, send Varian over. We'll sit down and we'll talk to him. Well, Farian comes over, sits down with Brad Duncan, Frank's son, who had recently taken over the company. And the two talked, and Farian told him of his story. The very same that he had told his congregation at church when he went seeking for a place to praise the Lord and follow the word. Something he found on the inside, like most people who come out, they have found God in some form. And for Farian to continue this into his free world was a good thing. But he had told his congregation of a 
a little bit of a different story of how he ended up in prison. He said there was an auto accident, caused the death of his fiance, and in as a result, he now had to wear an ankle monitor. None of this is true by any means, but it's not as bad as being like, well, see, I was in withdrawals from whatever drug I was pumping into my vein, and I went to a friend who I thought would give me something kind of help ease it. I ended up forcing myself on her, and when she didn't reciprocate, mm, I killed her. That's his story. That's not the story everybody gets to hear. He tells his church. He tells his employer. A totally different story. Farian does land the job with Alney Door and Screen Company, and he is put in the purchasing department. And the guy who worked in there he saw potential in Farian and eventually Farian picked up the job really well and he was out there like he had been doing the job for 20 years. Now, Farian attended church with his family, his his father and his mother and his brother and his brother's wife and his new wife, Glenda. Farian's parents had moved down during the time that he was incarcerated to make visitations easier. And now that he's out and in the free world, he has everybody fooled. Everyone. Glenda was known for being strict. Um, her sister-in-law would say she had a stick up her ass. Um, she she was. I mean, she was older than Farian. She kept him in a straight line. You know, you're not going to deter from this. You're not going to touch drugs. You're not going to touch alcohol. You're going to praise the Lord. You're going to to be very involved with their church. This will keep you on the straight and narrow. Now, when Glenda wasn't around and it was just Farian and Bryce and Tina and, and the kids, Farian would watch Beavis and Butthead and he would horse around with the girls. He was as seemingly normal as possible. When his wife showed up, all of a sudden he changed. Constantly talking about scripture and talking about sermons and what he was going to do with the teens because he was over the youth at the church. I mean, he was teaching Sunday school on occasion on Wednesday nights. He was even allowed to lead his church. He had become a very prominent member within it. John Little, he was trying to look for an obvious connection. And he had eliminated a couple of people that had came up with in the investigation. But Farian Wardrop's name kept coming up. So he decided, I need some DNA. We're going to compare it. If it matches... I have my guy. If it doesn't, well, we can take his name off the list. Now, here's the thing when it comes to the Sims, Gibbs, and Blau murders. There was a man named Thomas Granger who went to the police in 1986. He was concerned with somebody he knew and he thought was probably connected to all three cases. This man came forward to the Wichita Falls Police Department three days after Farian Wardrip confessed to killing Tina Kimbrough. Farian's name was already at the top of the list. And when they saw this report, they decided, you know, I think I need to go to Barry. So John Little walked into Mako's office and he said, you know, what would you say if I told you I think I've got the guy you're looking for? And that I can put him in the middle of everything that happened. And, oh, by the way, he's already been in prison once for murder. 
And Maka listened to what John had to say, and he gave him the go-ahead to go ahead and start surveillancing Varian, and if he could get something discarded that might have DNA, then they would do some DNA testing. So John Little jumped in his car and drived 50 minutes on Highway 79 to the little town of Albany, Texas. Farian was easy to surveillance. Not only was he wearing an ankle monitor, but he left for work at the same time each day. He ate lunch either at the factory brown bagging it or when Glenda brought him a hot meal. He went to church every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning. There was no variation. But here's the thing. The way Farian's parole was set up, he was not allowed to leave the city of Olney, Texas, unless he was traveling to Wichita Falls to meet with his parole officer. And then, and only then, would he be granted access. So he didn't even really technically know when his, you know, he had to go see the parole officer. They'd call and be like, you can travel from Olney to Wichita Falls on this day and you need to be in his office by this time. Well, ever since Farian got out of prison, he became a very punctual person. And with the fact that he had been sober for 11 years, it was, you know, he didn't have a problem being a functional human being in society. There was nothing in there changing and altering his personality. There's no substance abuse. So as little is watching Farian, it's February, it's cold. He can't exactly set out in front of the factory all day in his car where they're going so he doesn't freeze because the, the exhaust from the tailpipe's totally going to give them away that there's a guy sitting in a car and has been there all day long. Well, it just so happens that right across the street from Olney door and screen is a little laundromat. So on February 2nd, 1999, Little took a basket of clothes from his wife that was on the washer and dryer at his house and drove to Olney and he went to the laundromat and the dryer, the clothes just went in the dryer and it ran and it helped keep John warm and he had this perfect vantage to see across the street. So at 9 a.m. a familiar blue Honda pulls up. Varian gets out, uh, walks out of the factory and he's sits down in the car with his wife to take his coffee break and he is snacking on some orange crackers and sipping on some warm coffee from a cup that says wild card poker and John noticed this is my way I need that cup so he watches and for 15 minutes Farian sits in the car at exactly 15 minutes he climbs out of the vehicle with the cup and the cellophane from his crackers and John watches as Farian sets the cup on the car, does something, picks the cup up, turns around, and throws it away in a 55-gallon blue drum. That's it. Bingo. So John stuffs his cheek with a little chewing tobacco, and he leaves the laundromat and walks across the street. And as he walks up to this trash, Farian had noticed him, and he's like, uh, can I help you? And John tells him, you know, I just, I need a spit cup you know, pointing to the tobacco in his mouth and, and Farron's like, oh yeah, sure. Help yourself. And little looks down in the barrel and he can't sit there and overanalyze everything because when he looks, there's a hundred of these wild card poker coffee paper cups. 
he can't sit there and be like, I don't know which one. Because most people who are going to spit into a cup could care less what kind of cup it is. They just pick one up, take it off, and they just start spitting. But Little happened to notice the orange cracker residue on the cup. And he picks up the cup, tells Farian thank you, heads across to the laundromat, puts the cup in a bag. He has it. I've got my DNA. So he heads back to Wichita Falls. They send the cup off for DNA. And Little and the district attorneys from both Archer and Wichita They wait for Judy Floyd from Jean's screen to compare the DNA lifted from the cup to that of the crime scene. On February 12, 1999, a fax came through to Wichita County District Attorney's Office from Jean's screen, saying, quote, The individual whose saliva was deposited on the cup cannot be excluded as a contributor in the sperm DNA found on Terry Sims' oral swab. The frequency of occurrence of genetic profile found in this individual is as follows. 1 in 16,310,932 Caucasians. John Little had his man. And the two district attorneys finally had a name to go with the face for their cold cases from the 1980s. John Little, Smith, Maka, and Cole went to the judge that day and filed for a warrant for the arrest of Farian Edward Wardrop for the capital murder in the case of Terry Lee Sims. Within hours, they had that magical piece of paper. On February 13, 1999, Farian was driving to Wichita Falls. He was going to meet his parole officer that day. Today was the last day he was going to be confined to his ankle monitor. He had done his time. He had adhered to the rules and he was ready for his release from the system after two years. Farian and Glinda had planned to take a honeymoon that following week, as they were not allowed to do so four months prior in October when they had gotten married because he was on the ankle monitor and he was denied travel rights. So they had it planned. Farian had taken off from work. The two were going to go and celebrate their marriage. Finally, John Little, Paul Smith, they talked with John Dillard, Farian's parole officer, as they all awaited the arrival of the guests of honor. Punctual. The way he had been for the last two years, Farian walks into John Dillard's office. Little and Smith rise to their feet when he walks through the door. They introduce themselves to Farian and their positions with both the district attorney's offices. And Smith tells Farian, you know, Let's, let's go down to the DA's office and have a chat. At the DA's office, Farian was Mirandized, and then they began asking questions. They said, did you know Ellen Blau? No. Lie. Did you have anything to do with Ellen Blau's death? No. Lie. Did you know Terry Sims? No. Lie. Did you have anything to do with Terry Sims' death? No. Another lie. Did you know Tony Gibbs? No. Did you have anything to do with Tony Gibbs' death? No. Lie. Little then informed him of what they already knew. Then he said, you know, we've got DNA evidence linking you to Terry Sims. Varian never flinched at this statement. He held strong. He he didn't grimace. He wasn't like, it didn't come across his face. I'm, I'm caught. Because... He was going to hold strong to the to the story that I don't know Terry Sims and I don't 
I wasn't, I didn't have anything to do with her murder. Then the magic question is asked by Farian. Am I free to go? No. Mm -mm. His breath stopped. His heart stopped beating as they waited for the answer. And then his heart fell into the abyss when they said no. Farian was taken to the first floor for booking. They fingerprinted him. And then a chariot of black and white sheriff's car transported him over to the hospital where they drew his blood for further testing. Farian, in disbelief from his holding cell, began screaming, You people are crazy. I didn't do this thing. I have a good job, a good wife. I'm doing great. I'm not doing anything wrong. Tears of disbelief rolled down his face. He was minutes away from being a free man. And, you know, they were going to remove the monitor. He was going to be able to go away with his new wife. And he was going to be able to live the life he had worked so hard to have. Farian calls his little brother, Bryce, and he tells him, you know, I've been arrested and I need you to call mom and dad. And at this point, Bryce is fed up with his brother. He's like, what do you mean you've been arrested? I always have to tell you call them. And Farian's like, I can't. What am I going to write the phone number down with? I need you to call them and let them know. So Bryce does. And in the beginning of all of this, Bryce and his and his mom and dad, they stand behind Farian in his innocence for the beginning of this. Everyone who knew Farian was in complete disbelief over his arrest. He couldn't have done the things they're accusing him of. That's not who he was. That's not the person they knew. Farian finally was informed that his wife had come to see him and he was, he was going to get to talk to her. And after talking to her, he decided, I need to talk to John Little. So he tells the guard, tell John I want to talk and tell him to hurry before I change my mind. In the jail's library slash study sat Little, Smith, and they waited as Farian was escorted in. They told Farian, you know, you invoked, you know, your attorney privilege. And until you waive that right, anything you say, I can't hear. And so Farian waves his right to his attorney and they start the recording. February 16th, 1999, Farian Wardrop begins talking about his involvement in the murder of Sims, Gibbs, and Blau. Once the story was out with limited remembering, Farian had one more to tell them about, one they didn't know, Deborah Taylor. Farian says this after telling John Little and Smith about his involvement in the murders. Quote, my parents don't deserve this. My wife doesn't deserve this. My children don't deserve this. My brothers and sisters. It's because of those damn drugs and the hatred that I had in my heart. I caused so much pain to the victim's families, but I don't want to burn in hell. End quote. On November 9th, 1999, after a short sentencing hearing following the surprising guilty plea of the defendant, Farian Edward Wardrop, the jury came back and handed down the punishment of death for the capital murder charge of Terry Sims. Consequentially, he was given the term of life for the murder of Tony Gibbs, Ellen Blau, and Deborah Taylor. Farian left the court with what he insisted was inner peace, saying, quote, I've told God to take me. That I'm ready to go home. End quote. He insisted he wouldn't be using his appeals. However, in 2001, on the anniversary of Terry Sims' death, Farian filed his first appeal. 
where the family of the victims are usually the first to speak out openly when an appeal is filed by the person who is convicted of taking their loved one away, yet in this case, it was the defendant's younger brother, the one who told his age on the stand in front of Robert Kimbrew, proving Farian had lied. Quote, he's hurt people enough. He needs to let it go. Quit wasting the taxpayer's money. This case is closed. He's guilty. He admitted it, and he was tried and convicted. Take him down to Huntsville and put a needle in his arm and execute him. End quote. In 2008, Farian's death sentence was overturned, but in 2020, the sentence of death was reinstated, and he currently sits on death row in Livingston, Texas. He turned 62 this past Saturday. The woman who escaped his raging storm, thanks to friends showing up at the right time, is still alive today. And her daughter is none other than yours truly. My mother and I have joked about her encounter while sitting around getting to know new people, and sometimes even those we've known a lifetime. We've joked that he's the reason we're both so enamored by true crime. It's our story, one I never thought that would be shared at this level, but here I am telling her story with her permission. When I talked to her after she wrote her experience, she was more than a bit rattled. It never affected her this way, not until I asked her to write it down. I couldn't truly understand what she went through as she sat watching the news in 1986, but I can imagine with all of you. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we close out this case that made us go back to the beginning to understand how five women were tied together by one man angry at the world for his life failing at every turn. None of these women would be where they are today had their timing have been different. I truly hope he knows what kind of monster he is. The only one he knew was the one to drive him into confessing. Without her, there would never have been justice for the other four women. As always, I leave you with one last line. Timing is unpredictable and the severity is uncertain. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>